Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 12 of Out with Susie Ruffle. How are you? Um, I hope you're having a good day. Oh, guys, I feel a lot brighter uh, waking up this morning and watching Joe Biden's acceptance speech uh, to become the next president of the United States. I mean, I appreciate I'm British, but it really feels like a shift towards hope in the world. And it's really given me a spring in my step. Uh, A special hello to uh, all of you that live or are American. I know that we've got a lot of American listeners. I assume that you're feeling very happy if you're listening to this podcast, I assume. What a great day for hope, in my opinion. It's a it's a very hopeful day. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of you that got in touch after last week's episode with Rita. I love her. I think she's brilliant. And it seems that lots of you do too. Thank you to everyone that's left iTunes reviews or shared it on Spotify or tweeted or emailed instagrammed or any of the other ways that you can share it or if you're not sharing it and you're just listening to it by yourself and no one knows that you listen to it uh, thank you as well for being here and for uh, being part of this of this podcast community i've got a great episode this week amaral caddy i loved chatting to them i think you're going to really enjoy it too but before as always we have our listener emails and i'm gonna start right here Hi Susie, I know you must be bombarded with emails, but I had to get in touch. I'm constantly listening to a range of different podcasts, but none have affected me anywhere near as much as yours has. I find your podcast to be incredibly powerful and the messages of hope that it has bestowed upon its listeners are truly inspiring. I grew up as an only child with wonderful parents who were and still are unbelievably supportive in many areas of my life. Despite this though, they are sadly extremely homophobic. I don't harbour any ill feeling about this because they grew up in a vastly different world to the one we're in today and without interaction with people from differing backgrounds. It can be difficult to change deeply embedded perceptions. Nevertheless, this has had a profound effect on how I dealt with the realisation age 14 that I was gay. Due to the messaging I had received from them, I concluded that living a homosexual life was simply not an option, so I had suppressed not only my sexuality but a large part of who I was. I spent seven years in a state of paralysis, feeling confused, alone and clueless as to what to do next. When I went off to university, a wave of shame and unhappiness regarding my sexuality washed over me. Hiding my true self had negatively impacted me in more ways than I could ever have possibly imagined. It was at that point that I realised I could not live any longer like this and began the process of properly accepting my sexuality. Even with the passing of this important stage, I had no role models in my own life to turn to 
and a lot of the media portrayals of gay people who were ultra flamboyant was something I simply couldn't relate to. My initial feelings of relief had quickly turned to dust. I felt so alone. When I stumbled upon your podcast, though, I once again began to feel hope for the future. Listening to the show has shown me the LGBTQIA community really does encompass all manner of people. There is no right way to be gay and it's given me the confidence to finally come out to my parents. Words cannot describe how unbelievably grateful I am to you and your guests. Thank you for all your podcast has done for me and I hope that it be around for a long time to come. Oh, I think you could hear that. That got me right in the feels. Um, thank you for sending in that email. Um, JP is what you call yourself in it, so that's what I'll call you. I'm, I'm really chuffed that the podcast has done that for you and that's exactly what I was hoping to do when I created this podcast is show that all kinds of people are part of this community and everyone's valid and everyone's important and everyone belongs here. And uh, and that's that goes for our straight allies as well. You're totally welcome to come to the party as well. Um, thank you for emailing in. I'm so pleased that the podcast has, um, has shown you that you can be gay however you want to be. Yeah, I hope that your um, that your relationship with your parents uh, is okay. And um, may I suggest listening to, I don't know if you've listened to it, but if you haven't, Dustin Black's episode, which was the first one of the first series, there's a lot of conversation in that about allowing people to have time to change their minds about how they feel about stuff. And lots of people have got in touch to say that that, that, that message really helped them. And so maybe it will help you too. Maybe you've already listened to it. I don't know. If you're a fan of the podcast, you might have, but... Maybe there's some bits in that one that might be helpful to you right now. But thank you for emailing in. It really meant a lot to me. Okay, on to another email uh, from an ally. Thank you for your wonderful, enlightening podcast. Not only do I find your voice incredibly soothing, sorry if that sounds creepy, it doesn't, I'm delighted. But the stories you bring to light and your interview style is just fantastic. I'm a 34-year-old woman married to a man with two small children. I grew up without any queer representation around me. Obviously they were present, but not out at the time. And as I've grown up, my eyes have been opened to the wonderful and diverse world around me. I actually live with three gay men at university, and while I love those boys with all my heart, I'm embarrassed at my ignorance at their life and struggles. Podcasts like this and people like you, oh, are changing the world. Oh God, this is two that are like really lovely about me, and I feel uh, immediately uncomfortable that I'm sharing them, like I'm bragging, because that's not a very British thing to do, is it? But I will carry on. Podcasts like this and people like you are changing the world to enlighten people like me so that we can help teach our children not only to embrace the difference in people around them, but also to be whoever they truly are. Being aware of the struggles outside of my upbringing can help me to help create the next generation filled with tolerance and understanding, allowing everyone to honour their true selves without restraint or denial. So much love and respect to you. And that's from Jodie, and she's also an avid listener of Like Minded Friends. Um, Jodie, that that email really meant a lot to me. I uh, I didn't mean to share two today that were um, that were that were really braggy, but um, but you know what? I'm going to take it. I'm absolutely delighted that that's how you feel. Well, I, I said at the beginning I had a bit of a spring in my step because it feels like there's been a hopeful turn in American politics today that maybe will filter across the rest of the world, and these two emails have uh, have continued that spring in my step. So thank you very much. There's been more emails in this week. I'm going to share more of them next week. As I promised you last week, I was going to try and get enough interviews to go all the way up to Christmas. I think I've done that. Uh, So I think I'll be with you all the way until Christmas where you can hear me get more and more excited that Christmas is coming because I absolutely bloody love Christmas. And although it might look a little bit different this year, that will not dim my spirit. I will be wearing a Santa hat and denying my partner with Christmas music from the 1st of December as I do every year. 
Right, let's go on to today's episode. I thought this conversation was brilliant. I think Amru is brilliant. And um, I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, listeners. Oh, listen, I am so excited for today's guest. So excited for the conversation we're going to have today. Amru Al-Qadi is a professional unicorn, a queer Iraqi non-binary Brit. In 2018, they were selected for the Screen International Star of Tomorrow and were one of six BFI BAFTA Flair LGBTQ plus filmmakers of 2017. As a writer-performer, they have numerous TV shows and films in development and has written on shows like Hollyoaks, Little America for Apple TV and The Watch for BBC America, amongst other things. Amru is also an established drag performer and actor. As well as a writer, they've written for The Guardian, Independent Voices, The Observer, Gay Times, The Eye Paper and Attitude, amongst lots of others. Their debut book, Unicorn, A Journey from Shame to Pride and Everything in Between, has just been released in paperback. I'm reading it currently and let me tell you, I am loving it. Don't just take my word for it though. Russell T Davies said, it made me cry, it made me rage, it made me hoot. It moved my heart and soul. Ian McKellen said it should be read far and wide and Joanna Lumley called it astonishingly brave and engaging and I can't recommend it enough, guys. You've got to read it. What a treat it is to have them on the show today. Welcome, Amru. Hey, how's it going? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, just um, looking at my dog in his cone, feeling really bad. But other than (laughs) that, I'm okay. How long have you had your dog? Did you get him at the beginning of lockdown? No, I actually got him before sort of COVID was really like entering. It was like I got him on the 8th of February um but I mean every literally everyone's getting a puppy now it's absolutely insane I can't believe everyone I know has got puppies but yeah no I've had I mean he has really been my savior throughout uh this lockdown what's his name his name is Phaedra Phaedra I love it yeah he's just very melodramatic and so I wanted (laughs) to give him a sort of heightened diva name I love it much better than my mum's dog which is called Ron Uh, (laughs) All of the puppies were named after characters in Harry Potter and mum got Ron. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Very funny. And he's ginger. So it works. Although my mum does call him Ronald on a ding dong. So, you know, it's a different <laughs> thing. But we're not we're not here to talk about my mum's dog. That's not what we're doing today. We're going to talk about you. I was so keen to get you on the podcast because I've been reading lots of your stuff for quite a while now. I'm following Aww. you on Twitter and in, in hearing about all the wonderful things that you do. And I just knew that you would be such an interesting guest for listeners that, that aren't aware of you, obviously, also for those that are aware of you. So let's start back at the very beginning. That's, a, that's an easy place to start. Where where did you grow up? I was actually born in London, but then moved to Bahrain in the Middle East when I was like two, and then lived between there and Dubai until I was uh, around 11 and then came back to the UK um, to London when I was 11 turning 12. So kind of, yeah, childhood in, in, in Bahrain and Dubai and then sort of adolescence in the UK and onwards. I mean, what did childhood in Bahrain look like? Um, My personal experience was that, I mean, it's pretty sort of relaxing at at first I mean it was mostly just like 
living in a nice compound and swimming a lot and you know a lot of family time I mean Mm -hmm. that's just quite cultural but you know just a lot of um you know Ramadan with the family and just sort of just very humble very humble early life you know religious traditions that kind of stuff And and your family are quite sort of traditional and religious during your upbringing um, yeah, I mean, in terms of like how Muslims go, they're probably not that conservative. Like, right. you know, the, you know, my mum doesn't sort of fully wear a f- kind of hijab and a buyer and my dad, you know, wears clothes that aren't like religious. So within the kind of like Muslim Middle East, you know, they're not uber conservative, but compared to kind of more sort of socially liberal values that are in the UK they are quite conservative but yeah you know they are sort of you know traditional Arabs who have a certain kind of um, belief system in sort of what sort of appropriate and what kind of respect looks like you know very conservative socially but not so much religiously right okay so having had that experience in Bahrain and then I assume relatively similar in Dubai Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm then what was it like sort of coming back to the UK? Was that a, a huge culture shock? Yeah, I mean, it kind of was. I mean, I think like by the time that I was 11, which is when we were coming to the UK, I was already sort of uh, aware, you know, internally that I w- was having a lot of questions in terms of sexuality and gender and that kind of stuff. But those things weren't you know permissible to think about or or even question back in the Middle East and actually by that point I had been in Islam class for quite a while you know really from about the age of seven and a lot of um, fear had been sort of instilled in me in terms of like this real focus on hell and and sin actually is sort of really a major part. I mean, kind of similar to Catholicism in a way, but, you know, constantly looking at sin and stuff. So by the time I came to the UK, I think I was quite excited to leave Muslim countries because I thought, ooh, well, maybe this won't be, um, you know, the West will be better for me as a kind of quip. So I was actually really excited to come to the UK and had a kind of I think quite a strong urge to sort of assimilate and sort of forget about a lot of the kind of fears I had around Islamic punishment and that kind of stuff. So it was a culture shock, and it, but it was a sort of one that I kind of thrust myself into. And, that, you know, that had its merits and it's also its problems for sure. But yeah, I think, you know, as much as I kind of love the Middle East, I was already in my head beginning to doubt, oh God, you know, if I, if I am gay or I am any of these things, then how is this going to kind of square up? to my sort of faith and heritage and that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, in, you know, I thought, oh, maybe the UK will be a good place for me. And so did you, when you came to London, did you start seeing queer people? Did you start seeing people that you thought, oh, that's sort of maybe similar to how I'm feeling? Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I saw none in the, in Bahrain and Dubai, that's for sure. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even kind of talked about. Um, but yeah, just sort of like, you know, I have an uncle who has a British wife who live in the UK. And when, you know, we went over to their house, like she would have, you know, one of her gay friends round. And like when we would sort of go out to see something in the West End around Soho, definitely, you know, it was just like, oh, wow, look at all these people sort of just like existing kind of openly and proudly. I mean, but I was still obviously having to um, keep all those thoughts to myself. and, And there was definitely a kind of, 
protection from my family about, you know, I was still only accessing um, those spaces with my family. And so it was like, I was sort of, I was seeing it all around me and I was like keeping aware, like, oh, wow, you know, eventually maybe I'll be able to sort of integrate myself, you know, into that. But it was definitely a lot of fear because I think I, you know, I could see them looking at me, looking and sort of thinking, oh God, you know, we we mustn't corrupt Amru because we're in this place where, you know, all these sort of vices are allowed. And so, you know, in many ways, maybe it like almost kind of made them sort of double down in terms of their policing of me. And do you think that there was any inclination in the people around you that you were feeling like an outsider or were you doing quite a good job at pretending? Um, no, I don't think I was doing a good job. I think like even sort of ants knew, to be honest. But like, you know, I, I think when you're that young, you know, you kind of femininity or whatever is just sort of seen as quite innocent. Or, of course, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think definitely in my parents' head, you know, it was definitely very much like a thing that could could just never be. You know, I think they really mm. just in their head were just like, it's impossible. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and I, I mean, I was warned when I was about 10, I, I told my family that I wanted to marry Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Yeah, I've read this. <laughs> I've read this. <laughs> oh, and, you know, and there was like a real sort of panic, really, among right. among my parents and their relatives of, you know, Amory, you really cannot say that or you cannot even think that. So, you know, I was being sort of trained to conceive of of like my sort of just innate desires as problematic or sinful. You know, there was because yeah. I think they they saw in me just a curiosity and like a kind of um, urge for exploration and kind of just like an implicit sort of otherness. And you know, I think they were really worried. I mean, in a way, yeah, I think they were really like, oh, God, we need to sort of nip this in the bud. And obviously, you can't really nip that in the bud. And, no. um, and you know, nor should you. And and so I think that was quite damaging for me, you know, especially at that young age, just sort of being trained to fear things that I suppose were just quite natural. Um, and also really encourages shame. Mm, totally, totally encourages shame, which you know, as so many queer people will sort of kind of attest to, it's really just built in you and can manifest with problems in your sex life or having intimacy or um, yeah. relationships. I was reading a piece that you wrote. I mean, I've, I don't know specifically where it's from because I've been reading lots of your work this week and enjoying it so much, I must say. Oh, thank um, you. You were talking about sort of feelings of worthlessness as a child mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that sort of manifesting as... OCD which I I've never realized it really resonated with me because I so clearly remember if I do this and I do that then that will be okay and I and OCD is something that sort of I don't know if it is hereditary but seems to run through my family Mm. and I it's you know it's so comforting when you read something and go oh yeah that's what that was Mm. it linked to that I don't know. I mean, I don't want to talk about my experience, but I want to hear about yours. So, yeah, you spoke about sort of the feelings of worthlessness sort of manifesting as as OCD as a as a child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it kind of came in many forms. I mean, in its sort of purest form was from this practice in Islam where you kind of count all your sins on your left shoulder and then you put your good deeds on your right and you're kind of sort of trained to like continually be keeping a tally. And so just from 
you know, a young age, that sort of obsession with sort of counting how many times I was sinning to how many good deeds I was um, gaining was sort of quite manic in my head. And obviously I was sinning so much because sins were just sort of would come from, you know, I kind of say they're often like minor faults on a driving test, just kind of everything sort of like just thinking a negative thought or even sort of anything really. Um, and, And then when you add in like kind of bigger sort of questions of sexuality and that kind of stuff, you feel like you're getting loads and loads and good deeds are actually quite hard to do. So like, so from a young age, I have had that, um, sort of like eye on the scale of like how many sins were on my left shoulder to good deeds. And then when I came to the UK and, you know, went to school, um, I was very much like, right, well, I may have all in my head, you know, may have all this sin or, and, you know, my parents may end up rejecting me and I may be, you know, worthless or whatever. But if I can just get a hundred percent in every single exam, then, then that will go away. And, you know, my God, like my teenage years were so self-punishing. I mean, I was like, 99% 99% would have me kind of screaming and 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 really torturous and and I, I definitely recognized it just in sort of my drive like I do work so so hard and actually I'm trying to now be slightly gentler with myself in terms of my work ethic and and, and not yeah. to, to see it so much as a kind of race because it's just very much like I am just like gosh I need to keep working because as soon as I because I need to kind of keep up the good deeds in the and deeds in a way and also prove to the world that I'm not worthless. So and but that's that's obviously that's not an experience that's unique to me. I mean, I think so many queer people who, you know, are in the arts and have relative success in the arts often talk to me about this as well, of like, you know, having quite major drive to sort of compensate. Yes. I mean it's something that my friend Tom Allen, who's been on the show, um, and uh, is I also do another podcast with. We've spoken about that a great mm-hmm. deal of feeling constantly feeling like you've got to you know smash that project, then you've got to move on to the next one, do something equally as interesting, be you know just constantly sort of running to show everyone that you're that what you're creating is good and it's worthwhile. Mm. I guess for me, certainly as a uh, when I was young, I mean, even I guess it's still now to a degree, I still sort of travel all over the country and I, and I, and I do have a, a good work ethic. But I think for a long time it was, well, if my parents can't be proud of this part of who I am, this gay part of who I am, then let me be really successful in this other area. So right. they've got something to tell their friends about. Uh-huh. Yeah, I complete. I mean, for me, it was like not even about like getting them to sort of tell their friends but it's almost like let me prove them wrong in a way because I I was very much like billed as the sort of the problem child of the house and the problem child of the family I mean I was the scapegoat I mean there were constant sort of sort of family interventions about my behavior and especially with Iraqi communities and bear in mind this is around 2003 so we'd like the UK had invaded Iraq so there is there was a real sense of um Uh, like cultural territorialism of like you know we are Iraqis living in the sort of country that bombed our homeland so we need to protect our values and protect who we are and I definitely noticed the kind of hardening um, of their conservative values. Really and was there a real sense of community amongst other Iraqis living in the UK? Yeah definitely I mean we all knew each other but as a result but there are quite a strict kind of code of 
Islamic or, or cultural ethics in terms of, you know, you respect your elders, you know, boys do this, girls do this. And I was just like, I mean, I couldn't help it, but it was just, you know, displaying complete nonconformism. Um, and so I was the one who was sort of the scapegoat. So in a way I had my, my academic work to, I mean, I took my GCSEs so seriously. It was almost like a joke. I mean, I literally like treated it like, I don't know, like I was diffusing, you know, a bomb that would literally ruin, like, like I had to get an A star in absolutely everything. Otherwise I would, you know, self-harm. I mean, it was that bad for me. And I, and I did accomplish my goals, but then it was like, right, I need to do the same at A-level. And then at university, it was like, right, I need to come top of my year. And, and actually in terms of creativity, of you know then coming to london and doing drag and all that kind of stuff i started uh, to realize that like that kind of drive for perfection was actually um hurting the work a little bit because it was yeah. like i was scared to fail and actually drag has been a way for me to sort of fail a bit more in 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 a, in a fun way like you know put on something and and do a kind of i mean i love improv for instance mm. right and i love i love interacting with an audience in drag and and not having a rehearsed routine as such but you've got to be willing to fail haven't you to try that totally totally and i have failed a lot oh so have i <laughs> don't worry about that that's but that's what you do you're learning isn't it as a performer i think but i think it's also it puts you in that place where you're living you, when you're on stage if you're on the cusp of failure it's probably a really good performance because you're like you're really just living it and you're just doing it and you know, if you're too worried about what everyone thinks and if everyone's laughing you will kind of not do very well and and so that to me is why um, drag performing has been such a savior for me. I mean, I do a lot of screenwriting and I do notice my OCD sort of coming back there. But then again, if you're worried too much about like what people will think, you'll probably lose the spontaneity of characters sort of just playing around. But yeah, that's why creativity, I think, can be so great. Unfortunately, we do live in an industry where obviously you're always comparing yourself to other people and yeah. you have to try and let go of that a little bit. But for me, definitely that that work ethic. And when I just think how hard I was working as a teenager, I mean, I just, I don't even think people at NASA work as hard as I did. Because you, you must have got exceptional grades. I mean, I, from like reading your stuff and knowing about you and, and seeing, a, a, if people haven't watched, there's a fantastic interview with you and Krishan Gurumathi. And I mean, I mean, you're obviously very, very bright and uh, yeah, hugely intelligent. Um, but you must have got exceptional grades because you then went to like an, an all boys boarding school. Is that right? Well, yeah. So I, I did. I did get very good grades. And then my first sort of port of coal, because by the time I was 15, home was just so kind of traumatic and, you know, right. abusive. And so I was like, right, I'm going to use my grades to... Um, to go to a boarding school but I so I got a scholarship to Eton with a really kind of stupid idea in my head of like well the first idea I had was like just get out of this house and and live somewhere else so that you don't have to you know deal with all this sort of kind of constant violations towards my queer identity but mm -hmm. also because I was having such a sort of um quite an almost binary idea of Islam and Arab culture is bad just because of the attitudes I was experiencing within my context of in terms of homophobia and, and transphobia and that kind of stuff I was like well I guess I should you know 
go, you know, jump to the other side and become British. Um, and, you know, so when I went to Eton, I definitely wanted to be like uh, a kind of white aristocrat, which sounds really stupid, but like, I think I was just looking for the opposite to where I had been raised, thinking that that might be more um, sort of um, of a kind of habitat for my queer identity and that kind of stuff. I don't think that sounds really stupid, by the way. I think that totally makes sense to me that you go, okay, I'm going to do the total other Mm. of what I am. I think that's also something that I think is really common when we're sort of younger people. Yeah, it's quite naive, I suppose, just because it's like, obviously, Eton had its huge problems with racism and homophobia and classism and, you know, was worse, actually. So, like, I... But I definitely, and I think this is something a lot of immigrants and queer immigrants definitely speak to me about, is this idea of if you're having a kind of fallout with your cultural heritage for various reasons, you know, you'll try and sort of um, latch on to the cult, to another culture and assimilate within it. And so mm-hmm. in terms of like immigrant exceptionalism of so many immigrants sort of trying to work so hard in order to kind of convince their new country that they are a good immigrant yeah exactly and definitely that is sort of I think a lot of the kind of kernel of what was going on when I wanted to go to Eton and wanted to prove my Britishness I mean I'm definitely kind of over that now but like you're young and you can't really see you know I was 15 and you can't really see the big picture you know you're just sort of just looking for a place to belong and you'll probably choose somewhere quite hostile for a while yeah totally but you're just searching exactly I mean that's sort of life as a unicorn that my book is about mm-hmm. searching yeah. it's about it's literally like about just constantly looking for somewhere new to belong and I guess that's the sort of narrative of, of the book of is you know is there a place that can kind of hold all these sides of myself together You went on to Cambridge, is that right? So you continued doing the high achieving. Yes. And what did you study when you were there? Um, I did history of art and then kind of focused on sort of queer performance art. Right. Okay. Because I want to get into that in a minute. But I want to talk about where marine biology comes into all of this. Mm -hmm. Because I loved reading about this. So I I read that you, you were walking past a... Uh, I was about to say fish shop, but that sounds like a fish and chip shop. You're yeah. talking about like a tropical fish shop, pet store type thing when you were around 13 and you had sort of an, an epiphany? Yes. I mean, it was a kind of slow epiphany. I mean, I was having a really horrid time. I was around 13 and everything was um, so kind of complicated and, and just and just hard at home. And when I was walking home, one day from school, I saw a kind of marine aquatics sort of shop um, where they sell kind of coral and and marine fish and anemones and all just that kind of gorgeous stuff. And there was a huge tank in the window and I was completely hypnotized by by it because, you know, like with marine biology, it's, it's it's extraordinary because it's like there's there's been a long tradition of queer people kind of being quite interested in sci-fi and the fact that it offers sort of another universe in a way yeah. or an, and and I think that was probably my first instance of of like oh look at these alien life forms that 
don't seem to be um, restricted, you know, in the same way that we are on, because what I was experiencing was such kind of firm categories of man, woman, you know, gay, straight, whatever, you know, all these binaries. And, you know, here I was just like watching kind of starfish, just like having many legs that were all just kind of moving together and then all these kind of colorful organisms sort of blending into one. And so I went into the shop and kind of asked about it and then went home. And, you know, when I was, you know, reading about it at home, it was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, there are even marine beings that change sex and, 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 you know, just are just sort of inherently kind of fluid. And yeah, then I just became kind of transfixed and ended up kind of working at the shop every weekend and then working there all over the summer and then having my own marine tank at home. It was definitely like my first and probably my only kind of real childhood hobby of like this sort of kind of universe that I was sort of in charge of and that was mine. So was it when you were at Cambridge that you, you say you started looking at more queer performers? Mm-hmm. Had you considered performing yourself before? Was it something you'd ever sort of flirted with the idea of? I'd actually been performing at school since I was around 12. Yeah, it was a lot of acting and I'd, and I'd you know, acted in a few kind of TV and film things like as a kid. But that was always just a little bit stifling just because it was like really boring kind of Arab sort of representation on screen, which was all just kind of related to terrorism and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I'd always been quite sort of natural on stage, I think, because it was like, it was just sort of like a release in a way. It was just sort of, um, it was non-cerebral not in a, as in it was dumb at all. I think a bit more that it was not something that was like, you have to overthink in your head. You just get to go on stage and just sort of inhabit and be somebody else or, or sort of, um, you know, be present. And as someone kind of with OCD and a lot of, and a very overactive brain, particularly academically, it was very like, so, so nice to, you know, my OCD was off and off when I was on stage um and so when I went to Cambridge there was obviously such a good drama department there that I was just sort of kind of in theatre productions right from the off but um that is when I started a drag night because I just you know all the theatre productions ended up obviously just being quite stale and um and that's where I sort of made Glamroo and and really just explored that side of myself and kind of the rest was history I suppose and were you already out at this point I I was out as gay to to um kind of people and and yeah I mean with my family there was a sort of they sort of found out I was gay through unfortunately finding porn um but 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 but, you know and there was a sort I mean there were sort of so devastated and then was just like right well this is not going to happen again and you know we're going to fix this and we're just not going to talk about it again and you're going to be straight and you know there was just a sort of inherent denial so at home it was very much like this thing that we just didn't talk about but yeah I was very I you know when I went to Cambridge it was really exciting because it was my first um I suppose like my first experience of being somewhere completely free you know like you know I suppose at, at Eton you know it was still a school where my parents were getting reports and there were teachers looking up yes. you know uni or just like 
free so i i really was just sort of wearing the maddest outfits on the street <laughs> and, and wearing makeup and doing drag you know i guess that was where i just felt so free to um to liberate that side of myself i'm so lucky to have gone there and did it feel like like do you remember that first moment when you went on stage in drag did you have that moment where you sort of went oh this is what I want to be doing rather than doing these sort of stale old plays. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was obviously quite terrifying because I, I, I like didn't really know what I was doing, but I've always seemed to people to be very like confident and outgoing on the exterior and no one really like has any idea like the turmoil of like my internal emotional life. So when I started Denim, which was the, the drag troupe that I started, it was very much like, I got my friends, was like, we should do this. And then I posted about it online, you know, and like 400 students came. And I think people just assumed like, oh, this person really knows what they're doing. But, you know, beforehand I was trying to get into drag and I'd never done it before. And I was, I was quite, quite terrified and also feeling quite sort of, um, sort of alone just because it was like, this is so like, I'm doing this really sort of, big extrovert sort of confident thing and like my god you know the truth of what's going on at home is so so difficult and everyone here probably just thinks that I'm you know out proud and in charge but then genuinely once the sort of you know it wasn't really a stage because we did it in a crypt but like um but once the sort of music started and I got the mic it was just very like it was probably the most naturally confident I felt on stage because I wasn't worried about hiding being camp if I was playing, you know, a certain role or whatever. It was just like, boom. And I mean, it was a mess as well. Like, cause you know, I'd never, I, I'd always been able to sing, but I'd never um, sung live whilst being in drag. And, you know, there's, you know, mic technique takes years to do right. And, you know, it was like the sound was all over the place and, but it was and it was very freeing and, and I was there with loads of good friends and it was just very um, like, oh my God, it was a release actually. It was just like, a, oh, there we go. Yeah, I mean, as soon as that happened, it was like, right, got the bug, this is it, I'm, do- I'm doing this, yeah. This is what I'm doing. You know, and I'm lucky to have had that awakening. Like I really wish everyone in their life could have a moment as sort of clear as that. Yeah, I've, I've had those moments where it almost feels like you're above yourself watching yourself on stage like sort of going oh yeah this is the thing exactly that and so once you left Cambridge did you is that when you did you come back to London and sort of get into the drag scene yeah I did I mean I'd probably say the the first few years after Cambridge were probably like the worst of my life just because you leave the bubble of university where you know everything was really high pressured Mm. Um, but it's not real. The stakes of it aren't real. I took it very real, but like, you know, you've got the bubble of a kind of institution and suddenly it was like, right, there you go in London. And, you know, I, yeah, we started taking denim. We started at the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. I mean, but like, you know, I was making, I mean, you know, we're talking like 30 quid a performance. Yes. Um, and, you know, between 23 and 26, which is when I'd left Cambridge, you know, I, you know, hadn't got an agent yet. 
Um, and this is pre everyone was like getting excited about like diversity in a way. And I always do say this to, you know, production companies and stuff I meet now. I'm like, I have actually met you before years ago when you were horrible to me. Um, really? Yeah. yeah I've got to say, it doesn't surprise. I'm, I'm sorry that that happened. But it also doesn't surprise me at all. You know, or agents who ended up being like, oh, we really want to sign you. There's like buzz around you now. And it's like, I've only gone, the one I've gone for is the one who, you know, never laughed in my face when I was like, oh, this is really what I want to do drag shows about the Middle East and you know that kind of stuff most people would be like you know no way so th- those first three years they were good in the sense that um I'm really glad I did that hustle like I mm-hmm. when I see people coming out and, and never and having bypassed that hustle I'm like there's just a bit of me that like inherently distrusts that they have what it takes because like like I've done performing basements every night for oh. 20 quid and, and and doing drag in the cab and 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 it was really tiring and I just remember being really broke and exhausted but now that like I'm in a place where I'm lucky enough to like make money doing what I'm doing and and I appreciate it so much more and actually it was a good chance to make mistakes and 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 be bad at it before I you know got better at it yeah I often think that I made loads and loads of mistakes but luckily not that many people were watching yes exactly that (laughs) so I got to be quite bad at stand-up for a while with only 10 people in Edinburgh knowing every night but you have to be in a way yeah I I sort of hated it at the time because it felt like such a struggle and you'd see people sort of whiz past you and you'd think oh I I suppose I'm not as good as them or I suppose but now I, I really, I'm really pleased I had that experience because it made me, it made me work out that I really wanted it and made me really fight for, fight for my career, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I would love to talk to you a bit more about your sort of bringing in your Muslim Arab heritage into drag. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I guess not like consciously. I mean, I think like the sort of drag that I grew up in in the UK and uh, the drag that that I think has the most sort of potency is definitely um, coming from like, you know, clubs and performance venues. And it's a lot more DIY and it's a lot more um, kind of much more tied to sort of the trans community and much more intersectional in terms of its thinking about race and gender and, and just political and, and out there and, and messy and you know you know my drag show like I, I do love duets with sort of Allah and for me a, lo- a lot of my drag is about getting the audience to to really question their own complicity and what's going on and yes. and, and of the kind of live danger of like what the hell is this queen going to do next you know and I've, and I like that kind of panic yeah yeah like I, I find like you know drag is very political but I think often that is missed in that sort of pageantry style of drag. Mm. You miss that sort of urgency of political stuff. Where I kind of grew up doing drag, like through the Shay Shay show when I did performances, at, I mean, we're like doing basements in the glory, wearing budget outfits, yeah. and like making people laugh and think and cry. And, and we don't really give a shit. I mean, every now and then, you know, I will treat myself to a really really glam dress and just sort of feel the fantasy and it's really really wonderful but like definitely for me drag is about looking at islam and and whether there's any queerness in islam looking at how colonialism made islam homophobic but also just like really thinking about the intersection of race and gender and making the audience uncomfortable and i mean the, the show was so kind of 
daring in that way. I would love to chat to you about, because you were mentioning your sort of relationship with Allah and singing to Allah and also your brilliant piece in the book of Queer Prophets, Mm -hmm. which listeners is a book that we discussed on Ruth Hunt's episode because she curated it. So it's definitely worth having a look at. Yeah, I was really interested to read lots of stories within that book um, and yours especially about a queer person's relationship to faith and I guess also a non-binary person's relationship to faith is that it feels like that's been a bit of a journey for you yeah it definitely has been a journey I mean sort of what I talk about in the book and this was definitely something in my book and also the show that I was doing Quran to Queen was definitely about looking at like as a kind of person who's raised Muslim Allah is someone sort of probably non-consensually that I was forced to sort of enter into a relationship with into an enter into a, a dialogue with um and at points it was really harmonious and loving and it was this sort of kind of unconditional support from this sort of entity and then it became quite a sort of abusive relationship in the fact that you know Allah had all these sort of expectations of me and stipulations and and sort of rules and so then you know it's, it's a sort of presence that I've tried to divorce and tried to ghost and try to kind of get rid of but it being the kind of primary relationship in my life kind of almost like my parents is some it's it's a it's a sort of um entity that I've had to sort of have a dialogue with just because it's like there and you can't yeah for me anyway it's not true of of all people but it's just for me anyway so as I kind of talk about in the book and you know the show was very much dramatizing that you know Allah was not verbalized because that's sort of not really loud or there's no picture there was no picture of Allah but it was just very sort of a, a presence that I was having a dialogue with almost like flea bag but except it's Allah um and so definitely when I was sort of going back to Islam later in my life to sort of repair some wounds and, and repair some dynamics with family and that kind of stuff, it was useful for me to look at the Quran and connect with queer Muslim groups to, to see how there is all this other stuff in the Quran and also Islamic history that doesn't get taught that is a lot more queer in essence, you know, really believing that Allah is a sort of non-binary force that changes to every different person and all this other stuff so yeah for me it was like more of a way to remedy the existing relationship that I had which had got really toxic right that's so interesting and I think will be really hopeful for a lot of our listeners that have had sort of similar experiences so um I'll just move on to the, the final question of the uh, of the podcast. But before, I would love to say to you, and um, I've enjoyed reading your stuff so much, and I just think that your story is so inspiring and talking about mental health stuff and your journey to sort of becoming who you are and being out as who you are. I just, we get so many emails in from young people and actually, in fairness, older people and from people that live in countries where homosexuality is still uh, a criminal act or yet to be decriminalised. And I I know that this episode is going to um, be a real source of hope. And that's exactly what I wanted to create when I started this podcast. So thank you. No, thanks. So the final question of the show is always the same. And sometimes I say, what advice would you give yourself? And, or if you would prefer, what advice would you give someone who's in a similar situation, a different version of uh, Amru, a young, a young person that's in a similar place, maybe at Eton, maybe that little boy that was in the West End seeing people that were maybe a bit like him for the first time. If you could give them a, a piece of advice about what's to come about who they are, 
what would you say? Mm, I'd probably say like, don't blame yourself. Like, and in, in sort of, it's not your fault because definitely little Amru was sort of trying to fix it as if it was a problem inherent inside them. So I would say this is, you know, there's nothing to remedy. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening today. I loved that. I hope you did too. So interesting. I highly recommend Amru's book, My Life as a Unicorn. Uh, Check it out, get it maybe at a local bookshop uh, if they're selling stuff online now. Um, I hope that you have a good week. I hope that your lockdown is going okay if you're listening to this in real time today. And take care of yourself and I'll be back with you next week. Oh, if you want to get in touch, Twitter, uh, Susie Ruffle, Instagram, Susie Ruffle Comedy. And the email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Take care of yourself and I will see you. Well, I won't. But you will hear me and I will reach out to you once again next week. Bye bye.